our topic is a rather central one to um, to all museums uh, and all cultural institutions working today, which is really how to how to best address uh, underserved communities who are maybe underserved for a variety of reasons, including uh, phys uh, physical limitations. Uh, I think the panels that we have discussed this this morning are are all qualified and very interesting different to discuss their own institution and, and personal responses to the challenges uh, presented by uh, the need to be inclusive in the range of communities we both attempt to serve and actually succeed at serving. And uh, the questions that I've asked everyone to consider are both what they're doing to um, successfully bring uh, new communities into your institution as well as those uh, those problems that seem to be at this point uh, difficult to surmount or uh, or that you're just in the beginning of process uh, to uh, to solve so in a prior conversation I think we've decided to go alphabetically uh, in response to uh, to this and, and so I'm going to ask everybody to speak for about five five minutes or so um, uh, to begin with, and then we'll have plenty of time for conversation, and as well as to answer other questions that may come from others who are listening into to this conference. So that means we will begin with uh, with you, Max. Good morning, David. Thank you very much for having me participate in the call. I'm Max Anderson. I'm the director of the Indianapolis Museum of Art, and oversee therefore a general art museum with collections that range from the antiquities of the Mediterranean, Asia, the ancient Americas, all the way to contemporary art and everything in between. And we have, with over 130,000 square feet of galleries and other areas that total a building of 680,000 square feet, we have a big challenge, of course, in meeting the needs of all kinds of visitors. And that the main building to a campus that's 152 acres in size with multiple other buildings and historic houses. So we begin thinking about all of this inheritance with a universal design approach. And I think that was a part of the last conversation on today's call as well. And that universal design approach is something that inflects itself in everything from exhibition design to the recent remodeling of our 600-seat theater and our cafe and every other public and workspace in the museum. So it's a theme for us in our Education and Community Relations Committee, which is made up of professionals who work with the hearing and visually impaired and lots of other community members. We think of special populations that we were encouraged to talk about as including non-native speakers or non-English speakers, the elderly, uh, people of limited mobility, and first-time or otherwise inexperienced museum-goers. And so the physical plant is a challenge just by virtue of the scale that we cope with. And so we are constantly at work thinking about not only compliance with ADA, but exceeding and, and surpassing those normative expectations. Because so many of our visitors come from foster homes and group homes and other populations with the fact that we offer free admission to the public. We are very much a resource for a large audience that uh, perhaps doesn't necessarily find itself constantly at other museums in our city. We also start with accessibility issues with curb cuts throughout our, our campus with, with handicapped accessibility, obviously, and all of the other features that are normal for a contemporary building. But we've been working with 10 organizations in our city to focus on accessibility and universal opportunities. So examples include American Sign Language docent tours that we give and interpreters, as, as well as all of our public tour docents have been trained to use assistive listening devices. We're also working on new tour programs with audio descriptions for the visually impaired. And we, begin, we began with this last year, and several have been given by staff as well. We're partnering with the Indiana School for the Blind and Visually Impaired to refine our public tours, and the school superintendent is working with a group to make suggestions on how to continue to improve that. We do have three theaters. We have an 800-seat amphitheater, a 180-seat lecture hall, and a 600-seat uh, full-stage theater where we look to provide experiences that are unaware unavailable elsewhere in our city, uh, Joe Good Performance Group is coming here to do a, a project with a local collaborative team that will include a narrative description to enhance a, a dance performance 
So we'll supply enough information about the visual action to all kinds of visitors without intruding on the, sign, the sonic experience for others. And on that night, we'll have three kinds of assistance. We'll have ASL interpreters on stage, we'll have assistive listening devices, and we'll have audio description on another set of devices. We also provide opportunities through film programs, and uh, this March we're going to screen two documentaries that are focused on musicians with disabilities who strive to present their art. Partnering with the School for the Blind on one of those films, Genghis Blues, which is about a blind musician. And we're not aiming the films just at people with disabilities. We're trying to work to get a crossover audience. One last thing I'll mention is just what we do with the web, which is something that's gets a lot of energy at the IMA. We've produced a site called ArtBabble, A-R-T-B-A-B-B-L-E dot org, where all of the videos that we produce are closed captioned. And we're encouraging all of our partner institutions that participate in ArtBabble, which include MoMA and the New York Public Library and L.A. County, to do the same. Because next year, our new website, which is debuting early in the year, will include ASL interpretive videos as a a big feature of the site. So I guess that's a, a breathless tour through a lot of acres and a lot of challenges to su suggest some of the ways we're trying to be a, a better provider of opportunities. Thank you. Thank you very much, Max. Well, when we come back to you later, I'd like to hear about some of the areas that you've not found uh, success with at this point. Next, let's go to Aaron Betsky, who also works at a general museum uh, as, as a director and uh, and see what kind of challenges uh, he's encountered and what they're taking, what steps they're taking to to, to meet them. Aaron, good morning. Uh, good morning, David. Thank you very much. Um, yes, indeed, uh, our challenges are very similar to the IMAs, which is uh, just up the road here. We have a few extra challenges. Uh, one is that we have a uh, much smaller budget than the IMA does, um, and the other is that we have a wonderful. 125-year-old building that, because it is 125 years old and was added on to in eight stages, uh, presents its own particular challenges access. But more than that, in terms of image, and, and that I think is um, the thing that interests me both, because the physical challenges are things that you can cope with. And uh, we did, about a year and a half ago, an accessibility audit and uh, found out where we still had issues that made a visit to the art museum uh, less than easy for people with uh, disabilities or with special needs and have been working steadily to get rid of those those last uh, problems. Uh, we also have been working to um, uh, help all of us here as staff and as volunteers understand what those needs are and how we can best meet them. Uh, and we provide a lot of the same sort of services that, that Max does, so I, I won't repeat uh, that. But the bigger problem we have, and I think the more general problem we have, is one of image. And that, I think, is something that uh, I would love to hear what other people think of. We are still seen, seen as, um, as we were once called, the art palace of the West. Um, and for some people, a palace means something quite wonderful and grand that uh, you might want to see. But for many people, it sounds as something rather forbidding. And in fact, our neoclassical uh, facade sitting in the middle of a public park uh, gives people the impression that perhaps they don't belong in there, or perhaps it's difficult to get in there, or perhaps they will have difficulty accessing what is in there. And so a lot of our attention is dedicated to figuring out how we can reach out to different communities and coax them, seduce them, invite them into the art museum, and also to bring some of our programs out into the community. We have a program called Art for Life, which goes out into five specific communities in the greater Cincinnati area with a series of programs that are targeted at everything from uh, housebound uh, senior citizens uh, to young kids, to people who, uh, because of their backgrounds, would never have thought of even coming to the art museum, try to have them uh, see what they could gain from coming to the art museum. So in all of that, we're doing good and hard work, but what confounds me continually is that the art museum is still seen as a place that offers limited experience 
for a relatively small group of people. And beyond that, there's even a deeper issue, which is our continual struggle to have people understand that art is not just pretty pictures, but is that which helps you understand where you are, where you've come from, and where you're going uh, as any person, uh, no matter what your abilities might be. And trying to get to that broader definition of what art is and how the art museum functions to bring people and art together, I think is a perhaps more philosophical question um, that I would raise on top of um, Max's wonderful description of the programs that he is doing to, uh, to break down barriers and to invite people in. And then I would pose it uh, as a question more to this panel. Uh, once we've removed such barriers, once we've made art more accessible, how do we get to a point where our audiences uh, can make use of it, uh, can come to love it, uh, can come to feel as if art is a central part of their lives? And I'll I think, leave that, it at I think that. that's very, very elegant, Aaron, and, and eloquent and very, and very much in keeping with the range of topics I think we want to discuss this morning, because obviously we need to range from both the, the pra pragmatic and physical challenges to those challenges posed by philosophical and, dare I say, even class issues that, that form a barrier for many people, uh, enjoyment of the, of the art museum. One word that we haven't uh, unpacked yet either is the notion of the visual. Uh, since our host organization here is, is Art Education for the Blind, uh, which has tried to overcome what uh, a seemingly impossible barrier by providing experiences in a visual art museum for people who are visually who are visually impaired. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I think we, 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 we will have to you know go to that uh, uh, once we're through with our initial round. Uh, Tom Finkelpearl, the director of the Queens Museum, which is a, a remarkable museum in one of the outer boroughs <laughs> here in New York City. And Tom, if you could if you could talk a little bit to uh, to this issue from your perspective. Sure. Thanks a lot. Um, and yeah, very impressive what you guys are up to. Um, we actually got involved sort of uh, in outreach um, with a program about, I guess it was about 15 years ago for the visually impaired. It was called uh, Please Touch Tours. And uh, it was a, you know, a series of partnerships with organizations that bring you know, visually impaired people to the museum, and it was all about the touch. And at that point, we realized that um, Within our education department, we had a kind of deficiency, which is even though we wanted to reach out to folks, we didn't have necessarily uh, experts in how to do that. And so we started something called the Art Access Program, and we hired an art therapist you know, with a degree in art therapy who had a, a real in-depth understanding of the range of ways to communicate uh, meaningfully with people with all kinds of different abilities. We now have two full-time art therapists on our staff, and we have a dedicated art access classroom. And I think that that is, you know, relatively unusual in a museum. And so they, they work with, you know, folks on all kinds of different ranges. One of the things that um, is unique about the Queens Museum is that we're in the most culturally diverse county in America. I guess 138 languages are spoken here. But it's not so sense that all cities in America are becoming sort of insanely diverse. Um, but one of the things that we've also noticed is that when you start talking about barriers to participation, Aaron was getting at this, there's you know, a series of different kinds of barriers. And one of the things that we've done here is also we have two community organizers working on our staff. So they're reaching out to communities in ways that, you know, that the art folks on our staff don't really understand how to do. In this outreach to, uh, with the community organizers, and both of our community organizers happen to speak Spanish because there's a lot of uh, barriers to inclusion in the Spanish community, Spanish-speaking community, which is, by the way, a very diverse uh, set of different Latino populations here, was that if you can imagine the alienation of living in a city where you don't speak the predominant language, imagine then putting on top of that uh, the fact that you have an autistic child. So we've just gotten a uh, launched a three-year initiative to to try to understand how to do art education, inclusive art education, for uh, folks with autistic mem family members 
in other languages, particularly in Spanish. And one of our art therapists happens to be uh, fluent in Spanish, which helps. And, and she started, and she's also an expert in autism, so she started a program where she was doing inclusion programming. And if you can see the, the sort of uh, having experienced some of these workshops is just an incredibly moving thing to see the the way in which uh, these families appreciate being, in, you know, included in this kind of art programming. Um, I also, you know, Max, you brought up this thing of art babble. Talk about, you know, problems that we found to be relatively insurmountable. I'm so glad to hear about that because we've been having a series of workshops on our staff here saying, you know, how can we make video art accessible to people with, uh, you know, with hearing problems? Um, and, you know, there's been this whole question, you know, can you put a, um, some kind of a stream of text on the screen? Would you put it separately? It'd be something that, you know, somebody could press a button and it would be uh, closed captioned. Uh, but Max is, uh, I mean, I'd never heard of Art Babel, but that idea of having everything accessible with closed captioning online uh, really goes a long way to making uh, the work accessible. It's very problematic once you start talking to artists about putting text on screen. And by the way, um, you know, that uh, is a discussion we've come a fairly long way on. Um, but I also just wanted to say that, you know, in terms of other kinds of access, um, in terms of breaking down the, the sort of class and race and language barriers, uh, one of the things that we've done here at the museum is to work in depth with the uh, public library system here in Queens. And that is a uh, system that, that is one of the most successful public library systems in America, 19 million visitors a year. Uh, in a borough that only has 2.2 million. And they have demographers on staff, and they've been able to bring to the table a real in-depth understanding of how to open doors that museums simply don't have. And I think that Aaron is completely correct in that. And we've been able to bring to the table with them our experience with art uh, access, our experience with uh, communities with disabilities. So I guess I'll leave it at that. Uh, Tom, perhaps uh, you can later talk to us about some of the things that the library uh, demographers have been able to teach you so far that might be applicable to other uh, art institutions uh, listening in or, or reading this mm, okay. later. Sure. Uh, and and uh, finally, in, in our panel this morning is Connie Wolf, who is the director of the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco, a, a culturally specific museum and a museum devoted to contemporary thought. Uh, and Connie, of course, was formerly the education uh, director of education at the Whitney Museum, and so. Uh, both Max and, and I know her very well, uh, and, uh, and the program that she uh, that began, I believe, under uh, under Connie, which is Art Education for the Blind, or did that start before you came, Connie? Um, hello, everybody, and I'm delighted to be part of this conversation, um, representing probably one of the few people representing the West Coast, given the time difference. Um, so the um, Contemporary Jewish Museum is um, a non-collecting institution, and we, um, although we've been around for over 25 years, the museum um, about 15 months ago opened a new facility in downtown San Francisco. Um, it's 63,000 square feet, and it's a new building designed by Daniel Liebeskin. And it's quite remarkable in that we were able to build a brand new building and think about strategies for audiences and participation um, in all ways, not having to um, adapt a new, an old building like Aaron is trying to do, but to um, really create something from the ground up. Um, I would say being a culturally specific institution, um, we begin with um, sort of um, a twofold um, challenge. The first is that um, being a Jewish institution, we have to overcome the issue that um, Jews are homogeneous and that there is one way of approaching and serving and attracting a, a Jewish audience. And we've discovered very quickly how complicated it is to reach out to the quote-unquote Jewish community because of its incredible diversity. And the second issue we've had to overcome as well is being open and accessible and um, um, welcoming to people who are from the broader community who are not um, Jewish. And so in the last 15 months, we've learned quite a bit about our audiences. We've been doing extensive surveys. And what we've discovered is that, um, um, like many people have, is that exhibitions 
and their content of the exhibitions tend to drive audiences. And so while we have the Maurice, uh, Maurice Sendak exhibition on view now and are attracting a very wide range of um, audiences to the institution, what will happen when that exhibition closes and whether or not there will be um, um, people will feel comfortable coming back for another exhibition that may not be the subject matter for them. So um, we are constantly um, thinking through how to create our um, public programs, our educational initiatives. Um, Tom mentioned the, the public libraries, and we are um, doing a lot of work with our the San Francisco Public Library. We're actually going to be doing, in a couple of weeks, the first time that um, we will be the only museum to ever offer anybody free admission who shows their library card. So we're having a, a day in a few weeks where it's the free library card day at the museum. And um, we're very excited about partnering with the library, and they're ex extremely excited about working with us. So we are, um, our building is, you know, completely ADA accessible. It is, um, uh, we're welcoming to groups with all different kinds of needs. But it has been um, um, an interesting journey um, trying to include as many groups as possible. And this year we actually um, hired a community outreach person. That's their only job. And we're beginning to see some new um, results from having somebody um, who works in the community. I'm very intrigued by Tom's idea of hiring community activists. And I, I sort of wonder if I'd heard about that earlier, if I would have shifted that position from community outreach to community, a community activist person filling that position. Um, but overall, the museum is, attempts to be as welcoming as possible. Um, but we do have these initial obstacles of having the word Jewish in our name as both a strength and an obstacle for those who don't want to participate in something that they think is just for um, people who are Jewish. Or we have the um, challenge of being, I think, the only Jewish museum in the world that is not a collecting institution that does not focus on history or the Holocaust. So people aren't quite sure what to make of us. And so we do actually have many people walk through the doors disappointed that we're not a Holocaust museum and disappointed that there's not a history component to what we do. Um, however, there are as many people as disappointed. There are threefold numbers of people who are delighted to um, experience the kinds of exhibitions we present. So um, it's been an incredible learning curve, and we have a long way to go um, as we move forward just after being open 15 months. So I'll end there. Well, thank you, Connie. And it's great of you to get up so early to join us uh, for, this, for this conversation this morning. Thank you so much. Uh, now, I'd like each of you, if you can, before we uh, open the discussion to others listening in, uh, to participate, <laughs> to discuss uh, an area where you have not succeeded yet, the most frustrating area that you might uh, uh, have in relationship to serving a specifically underserved uh, population of your within your community. And uh, we'll start again at the beginning with Max. We'll give everyone a little bit of time to, to think about this. Max? It, I think it's clear we've all been looking to ways to improve a, a, a situation we've inherited. And for some of us, I've been in my job for three years, there was a fair bit of catching up to do when I got here with a building that, kind of like Aaron's in Cincinnati, had been perceived by the larger community as, as being somewhat at a remove. And so the stealthy approach to partnering with different organizations in town has taught us mostly what we aren't doing well. <laughs> I think that far exceeds what we're trying to do uh, and accomplishing well. For me, the, the core concern remains about visually impaired and, and hearing impaired visitors for whom, on the scale that we're dealing with, we simply haven't invested in, in human capital in having people on staff who are at the ready at the front door ready to greet any any visitor with any set of concerns uh, and deploy. Those we have to still do by reservation to a large extent and at a time of, of retraction for most of our museums, I assume, if not all of them, the tough choices ahead are where the core of the museum lies. 
And, of course, the core of our museum, like so many others, is, unlike Connie's, is collecting and all of the attendant challenges around that so that education becomes integral to the, the use of those collections. But when we're thinking about cuts uh, and growth back once, once the economy improves, it is very tricky to simply um, align our resources in tandem with the very good works we've been talking about when you need something as basic as uh, registrars and, uh, and conservators. So that's a long-winded answer to a very short and good question, David. Yeah. Uh, is, there, is there sufficient funding in your local or regional community devoted to the support of, uh, of these specifically challenged uh, aspects of your, of your constituency? We have uh, in one board member, Jane Fortune, a, a passion for this, and she has been single-handedly supporting our interests and needs in accessibility and, and the creation of a task force that's been ongoing. And I think from a foundation perspective, there is interest locally, but a lot of this has been self-funded. A lot of our initiatives have simply been on the, the sweat equity of staff, talent, imagination. And I do hope that as the sky is clear economically, we'll be in a better position to make a case for more issues confronting accessibility challenges. I hear you. Aaron, uh, could you, uh, can you talk about the area that you find as the most problematic or troublesome or the biggest fail, failure to date in terms of reaching out and serving these, these communities? Well, um, uh, Max, as usual, took uh, took the words out of my mouth. Uh, the the biggest problem is you have to make a reservation, quite simply, that the kind of services we offer, uh, we can't just blanket that we have to offer them when asked for. And that that is the essential problem. Uh, what we would like to do is to have um, accessible uh, tours and assistance for people with disabilities available just as a matter of course, and instead uh, it's only available if you ask for it. And that step of asking for it, of course, is the, the biggest uh, barrier to inclusion uh, that exists. And that is a funding problem, and unfortunately we do not have uh, anyone in our community who has made that a priority, so it has been self-funded here, and we've, uh, we've had to, to look to... Um, uh, whatever general funds we can we can find to do it, so I think that that has been an issue. But again, I'm going to put it in a in a larger framework, which is we also went free uh, about uh, seven years ago now, and uh, since this beginning of this year, uh, all of our special exhibitions have also also been free. So there's no charge for any of the art we present here, and uh, yet we have not seen attendance rise nor have we been able to uh, welcome more people who we thought would be better served by uh, an art museum being free. Uh, it, it has helped with, uh, with allowing people who might have financial restraints, but it hasn't really um, made as much inroads as we would like to. So again, it appears to me that it's a question of, uh, of accessibility in terms of image and understanding as much as it is of physical uh, services or presence. One other comment uh, based on what, um, what Max said. I do think, and, and it's something that we haven't really talked about, although Tom uh, touched on it when he talked about his Please Touch tours, and we've also done versions of those, but there is an essential problem with an art museum that um, it is essentially a visual institution. And having to confront um, what theoreticians think of as the uh, the regime of the eye, um, I think is uh, finds a very practical um, reality when you're talking about people who are visually impaired. And I I am not sure and have don't know any clear answers as what you can do uh, in that arena because the kind of art that uh, you can touch and will gain something from touching is very limited. Um, and so how much more you can do, I think, is, uh, is for me, an, an unanswered question. No, I, th I think that's very well put, Aaron. I think, you know, uh, the anthropologist Gregory Bateson once said that people don't order what's not on the menu. And I think the <laughs> issue is uh, how do we expand the menu for people for whom the art museum or the, the, the life, you know, the world of visual pleasure that's often represented by the idea of the art museum has not been on their menu. Uh, 
Tom, can you speak to this for a bit? Yeah, I, I just wanted to make a little comment <clears throat> about uh, what Max and Aaron said. And one of the things that I've found is that, you know, while you can't do everything, um, making incremental steps in the direction of, of inclusion is so appreciated by folks who have been excluded mm -hmm. for so long. For example, the, you know, we have the Panorama of the City of New York, which is our most famous exhibition. It's an, the largest architectural model in the world with 890,000 buildings on it. It's, the, it's a model of New York City. Obviously, that you know, brings in tens of thousands of people every year, but it was inaccessible to you know, visually impaired. So it's, it's how do you express that? So we, we consulted with some folks who are experts in this, and we built a little model, which is there all the time, which is a... a you can touch it. You can feel it. I've been there with uh, visually impaired people who are like, oh, my God, I, now I understand the panorama. Mm. And so it's something where, you know, every uh, weekend we have one of our art therapists here, and they do inclusion, uh, you know, aspects of the, um, of the uh, art workshops that we're doing. So there's something to do for somebody with any, within a wide range of disabilities on every weekend at the Queen's Museum but not everything, but, but I think it, the thing is that if you can say, I'm going to bring my family to the museum and, you know, my kid's going to be able to experience something and have a meaningful experience, it kind of doesn't have to be everything as long as people understand that you're going in the direction of inclusion. So that the, um, but I, so I'm, I feel that the most uh, sort of accepting and positive audiences that we have at the museum are people, families with, with kids with disabilities, because they're saying, okay, there's, it's, it's not everything. I wish it were more. I think there are things you could do better, but there's always something that could be done at the museum for my family. So the biggest area of frustration, actually, we've been very invested in, in you know, online uh, projects. We have, you know, Twitter feed, Facebook. We've got a big presence on Flickr, et cetera. And that's really great for inclusion for some folks and completely inaccessible at this point for uh, a lot of people. Uh, there's nothing for the visually impaired on our website uh, that in any way translates anything. And there's no, it's only in one language, which is for us, I think, a kind of a, a little bit of a disgrace. But it's something where I feel like that that has been a hugely successful outreach effort, but also only partially. And I don't know what other people have done successfully to make their uh, websites more uh, accessible. Uh, Tom, has there been uh, money from the city of New York or from regional foundations or individuals devoted specifically uh, answering some of these uh, uh, concerns? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, yeah. I mean, there are, there are foundations that in, in these kind in all different ranges of accessibility. Um, and, you know, I mean, these are not huge. I mean, we just got to you know, half a million dollar IMLS grant for the autism uh, initiative in immigrant communities. But that's by far the biggest grant we've gotten in the last couple of years for that, for these kind of programs. But I think, you know, there are small foundations all over the place, uh, and they have, you know, specific interests in, in specific niches. Well, thank you. Uh, and Connie, um, uh, where, what area do you feel has, again, been uh, the greatest uh, challenge or where you've really found in this first year and a half of the new building uh, the most difficult for, for you to address these, these needs? Well, I think that um, probably the biggest challenge is that when you're a smaller institution, you still want to have the ambition of a larger institution. You want to reach out. I mean, I feel like it doesn't matter what size we are as a museum. As a museum, I feel like we need to be um, accessible to every population, and yet when you're a smaller institution, it's just impossible to do that. So you end up having to do food, and that's never, um, I always feel like that is never in the best interest of the community. And so, in a sense, we've just had to be, um, in a sense, look broadly at all of our differences. And we've been very, um, um, engage with cell phone tours because they are free and they, they're easy to produce and it means that people can experience, we do a cell phone tour on our building and it's a kind of a wonderful way to um, introduce people 
who um, perhaps uh, want more information and want it in a different kind of way. Um, and in a sense, we just we don't turn anybody away, and any group that calls to want a special kind of tour, we just you know self-fund and make it possible. Um, the thing that I look forward to moving forward is um, trying to really focus on making these programs more accessible and making the community more aware of what we do. Um, it's just been a slow process, and um, you know having large print. Um, text panels and um, materials available for all of our audience has been really important and they're very much used by an older population because we have discovered that um, during the week the, the average age of a visitor is about 65 or 70 and so um, we need to be accommodating for their needs as well. But I feel like there's always this feeling that you're never doing enough and there's so much more to do, and how you set priorities within your own community is always the, the most important thing. But also it means that certain things don't get done in the way you want them to. No, I'm sure that's very frustrating, uh, Connie, and especially having worked in a larger institution to then work in a smaller one where your resources are even more constrained. Um, that must be particularly frustrating. Uh, one, one final question for all of you, and we can start with Connie on this one, uh, and that is, uh, how, how do you best get feedback uh, that, that's useful from these underserved communities and, and then apply it and, and really really be sure that you're at least hearing from, uh, from these underserved communities rather than just assuming things about their needs? Well, Max here, I guess uh, we do as many others do. We have a, a committee, the Education Community Relations Committee, which has members from the various organizations in town that are dedicated to people of limited mobility and, and people who are hearing impaired and visually impaired. So they sit, in effect, in uh, a format in which they can influence budget decisions made about resources and programs directly at the table with with curators, with educators, and uh, administrators. And I think having them at the table is critical as people who, who bring an outside perspective to the museum, because as valuable as it is to have a staff person tasked with that, it's in some ways equally valuable to have a person who has no loyalty necessarily to the, the brass, but can speak their minds in an open forum. Uh, I, think that, I think that's true. And Aaron, uh, what do you do in your museum to, to make this work in Cincinnati? Um, well, our, our best mechanism is this group called Art for Life, as I mentioned earlier, because it's a collaboration between the art museum and a series of community organizations. Um, and, of course, that allows us to be rooted in those communities. It's been run for uh, about four years now, and we've expanded from three to five communities, but that's still not very many in the greater Cincinnati area, which has close to two million people in it. Um, so trying to figure out how to reach out to more communities I think is important because they tell you what they're looking for and what they need as much as anyone uh, when you're out there in the community. And so um, my fond desire would be to uh, increase that network and for the art museum to become more of a hub in, this, uh, in, a, in a much more diverse and dispersed network of such uh, community activities. Uh, and Tom, uh, I'm sure you must be plugged into a number of uh, community uh, outreach organizations in Queens. Right. Is there any one specific way that you're ensuring that you're getting real, useful feedback with consequences? <laughs> um, I'm not sure. Um, one of the things I have to say is that I'm not, a, I'm not big on formal assessment. I think uh, museums waste a lot of money on uh, assessment, and that has to do with what you were saying before. I think, David, about you know, people order what's on the menu. So if you base your assessment on uh, questioning the audience and understanding what the audience that you currently have thinks, then I think it's a waste of time. What I, uh, and by the way, we do it if we have to do it for you know, a foundation requirement or whatever. But, um, so the community organizers, for example, we have one community organizer that's working in-depth in Corona 
And she has put together a coalition of 25 community organizations. And those community organizations are the ones that are, are on the ground offering services in the community in Corona. And then sort of interrogated those, that coalition as to, you know, what are the fundamental issues? And some of the fundamental issues in Corona turned out to be obesity and high blood pressure amongst Latin American women. It's a long story. We then formed a partnership with Elmhurst Hospital to address the issue. We have a series of, of ongoing, you know, community festivals in the community which use art and present contemporary art and dance and music uh, as in a way to to draw a crowd to then test people for diabetes and high blood pressure, etc. So it's not a formal process in the sense of um, you know assessment mechanisms. It's a it's a community organizing process that has real sort of roots uh, in the community. We've, we've been working on that initiative for over three years at this point, and we feel like we're really, especially with Corona, which is our immediate neighborhood understand what's going on. And then when we, you talk about access issues, we've, we're trying to weave in the other abilities that we have at the museum in terms of providing access experience for, let's say, people with uh, disabilities within the minority communities, within the different language communities, uh, religious communities, et cetera, within Queens. Thank you, Tom. And Connie? Well, one of the strategies that we've been using um, in preparation to open our new building was to really work with um, community groups. And so we, um, we also established different advisory groups. So we have a, a family advisory group. We have a youth. Um, we have a very active teen program. So we have a teen advisory group. We have a Jewish educators advisory group. We have a public school educators advisory group. And so these advisory groups really work with us to really help define our goals and um, set um, our uh, ability to really highlight what programs we're going to develop. And it's really just being able to listen to these different groups. And, for example, through our family group, one of the things that we initiated was um, we now open once a month on Sunday mornings early for preschool um, kids and their parents so that the kids can have an opportunity and their parents with, to experience the museum um, without being um, concerned about the noise they make or what their needs are. And that's proved to be enormously successful. And um, it's really because of really working within the community to determine what they're interested in doing and what will make the museum a destination for them, particularly for audiences that haven't come before. And the, the times we've done it, we've discovered that for the most part, all the visitors have been first-time visitors to the museum. Um, for these special mornings. So we really reach out to the community and really listen to them about what will make the museum accessible and um, attractive so that we can serve them in the way that they need. And that's been very successful for us. I'm glad to hear that. Now, uh, we have about uh, 15 minutes left in this, in this session. If there are those listening in to this uh, conversation who have questions for any of Members of the panel, please please address them. Um, can I make more of an observation than anything? As John in Toronto was a blind person, I think a lot of members of our community figure an art gallery or a museum is a fairly, uh, you know, a place that's not going to serve our needs very well. So a lot of us probably figure there's not much point in going, irrespective of the work you all are doing. Secondly, until recently, I think especially of an art gallery, the term has implied to me painting. Well, as a blind person, why would I bother? Um, I, I've subsequent, of course, I now know better. And having had a couple of very excellent descriptive tours of painting, I, I'm starting to think that maybe even painting isn't quite as inaccessible a form to me as I always thought it was. And so one of the things that I said to the people at the art gallery in, in Toronto here is you folks talk about different schools of painting. And when you talk about them, obviously they mean something to you. They mean absolutely nothing to me. And so can we somehow find somebody who might do a session for us, a few of us, that will try and explain to us the differences in different schools of painting and 
recently uh, a woman at the art gallery has volunteered to do this for us, and uh, tomorrow I'm going to meet with her to try and set it up. So, um, part of the part of your your problem is is uh, getting through to my community and to other parts of the disability community that. Uh, First of all, that you are doing work that's uh, directly intended to make your places more accepting of us and our needs, but also that our community I think about your places as uh, you know part of uh, part of our community and things we ought to just excuse me places we ought to consider more to visit. <coughs> that's very well put, and thank you for that for that comment. David, Does anyone else have any comments yeah. or questions? Yes, please. Yes, um, this is Lou Johnsante. I. Um, I'm a producer who works f with Art Education for the Blind, creating materials for them, usually audio and video. And I wanted to mention, uh, because this has sort of come up, what is there available online? How do you handle things like this? Uh, accessible materials for blind people. And currently, AEB has, well, there are a number of things, and there are two projects that are almost done right now that you can actually look at online. One is called um, American Art, and it's a collaboration right now between AEB and the Brooklyn Museum and the Whitney Museum to sort of show a model for how a museum, any museum, might showcase its uh, the highlights from its collection online for people who can't see. And basically it uses a lot of sound um, to create context, history, uh, it uses sound effects, plus verbal description, sort of a traditional kind of verbal description of the artwork. So this exists at, at a site right now that's I can tell you is... Um, uh, yeah, what's the site? I want, I want to have a look at this one. Well, if you go to um, artbeyondsight.org, uh -huh. then slash amart, A-M-A-R-T, standing for American Art. And so artbeyondsight.org slash amart. And right now there are eight works from the Brooklyn Museum, eight works from the Whitney. Um, there are there's audio for each one. There's a a, a visual there for people who want to download wow. it. There's a script if you can't hear it. There's a script you can read of what the audio is saying. And eventually there will be ta uh, tactiles and uh, educational materials too for people. So that's that's in the art field. And since AEB's interest is broader, it's actually into visual culture in general and and other aspects of culture, there's a site called New York Beyond Sight, and that is local to New York City, although it could be done in any city, and the, on that site, we have, we have found prominent New Yorkers, we'll call them that, some of them are you know, nationally known figures, artists and um, actors and things, um, but all of them are, are prominent to the area, and we get them to read verbal descriptions of their favorite New York City a landmark, uh, building facade, uh, public art, uh, public space. And these are like about mm, five minutes long at the most. And again, the site has uh, a picture there. It has the audio of the person doing the verbal description. And again, so, some of them so far have tactiles, and eventually we hope they all will. So if someone's interested in knowing more about, well, what exactly does the you know, Empire State Building look like? How can I help them understand that? And so we have people who do that. Um, and and that, for instance, Congressman Charles Rangel is one of our readers, and he's doing the Apollo Theater um, as a visual thing that exists in the community. Mm. Uh, Very interesting. And can I ask a question that, to the field, and perhaps someone has a response? Maybe one, someone, uh, just a, a participant who's not on the panel. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about the internet, of course, and how valuable it is. But how do uh, uh, visually impaired people use the internet uh, effectively uh, if, uh, is there enough audio command potential possibility on the internet that you can just uh, tell your computer to go to a certain web address uh, if, you, if, you're, if you're visually impaired and, and be able to Depends use how a site is set up. Um, a lot of websites have PDF and only PDF, which for a lot of us isn't accessible at all. You know, there's the big lie out there that, that Adobe makes PDF accessible. It can, but it doesn't necessarily do so. It depends how the site, how the file was created. And so uh, whether there's a description of what a link means, sometimes just a graphic link, sometimes there's good description of what the link will mean. Uh, so there's all kinds of things to, to, make, to make your sites more, more usable. 
I, I contend there's a difference between accessibility and usable. And right. so uh, the, the, right. the more the, the more text on them, the better for us. Uh, yeah, AEB we, it keeps trying to uh, to find the best ways to do this to make them accessible to traditional screen readers like JAWS, so that you can you can find right. the, the links on the site. You can also listen to the audio uh, or download it um, to uh, whatever form you want. Great. Uh, any any other any other questions or comments for the, to the panelists? From yes, the I have a question. Can you all hear me okay? Mm -hmm. Yes. Hi, um, my name is Lisa Davis. I'm from the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm the docent coordinator here. We just actually developed a tour for people with visual impairments. So I'm wondering, how do you all advertise to, and, and is there a specific markets or people that you advertise to to bring in, you know, bring in the tours? Uh, well, Max Anderson here in Indianapolis. We work with the, the Indiana School for the Blind, which has a, a terrific... Uh, opportunity through mailing lists and listservs and others to, to reach audiences. So I wouldn't say we outsource the issue, but we rely heavily on an organization that's completely committed to the community. Okay. Great. Thank you. Yeah, we have uh, at the Queens Museum sort of long-term partnerships with various organizations of, uh, for the visually impaired. But I think if you meet one group, you're going to mm -hmm. find a network that's going to be, it's not going to be hard. You're okay. going to be able to find the folks in your community pretty easily. Hey, right. I had a question. This is Tom again. Has anybody, uh, and I'm talking about, you know, on the panel or out there listening in, seen or experienced a show called Dialogue in the Dark? Yeah. Yeah. This is an incredible show we were trying to bring to the Queen's Museum, which doesn't look like it's going to happen, which takes place 100% in the dark. It's a, it's a way of experiencing it. It's about an hour or I think there's a two-hour version. All of the people leading you through the space are visually impaired or, or blind. And, and it, it was an absolute life-changing experience for me. I thought it was absolutely incredible. And it wasn't about bringing, uh, you know, let's say visually impaired people into the museum. It was about bringing people, sighted people, into a visual, what it, you know, experience of your city as a visually impaired person. It's site-specific yeah. to each city that it's in. It was, it was fantastic. It must be remarkable. I, I, there was a great restaurant in Paris that was um, that functioned that way. It was mm -hmm. staffed fully by visually impaired people, and you walked into a completely black space, uh, and you could not see anything. And you were seated by someone who had no problem seating you and moving you through that space. And you were served an entire meal uh, in complete darkness. And uh, it was... Um, that experience was a remarkable one for, for someone who relies on their site, uh, you know, to make it something as common as eating a meal. Uh, <clears throat> any other comments or questions from any of our listeners? Yes, uh, this is Marie from Art Education for Blind. I have a question. We um, talked a lot about um, diversity and um, for um, people with disabilities, but also um, over um, communities, and it, it seems from what I've heard, um, and especially with Tom Finkerbells on the um, <coughs> the Queen's Museum, that there is definitely a, a willingness to reach out to uh, various communities. Um, and I've heard a lot uh, the term of disproportionality in schools, but it's something that uh, I haven't heard much for museums. And um, We've been doing a lot of training for people, um, for museum staff to disability awareness training, especially. And I'm wondering if some of, of you in other museums have envisioned to do some um, trainings, awareness training um, around this diversity and disproportionately issues, and not only for educational staff, but also curators, because we can also think as, as um, of diversity in for the content of a, of a museum. Um, so I don't know if any of you could comment on that. And if my question wasn't clear, I can try to rephrase it. I think the best diversity training is having a diverse staff. Good point. Mm -hmm. it, it definitely starts there. <clears throat> but are there specific ways in which you can take a staff that's already embedded and not so easy to change? And to uh, and to reorient them in, in, in a way that's useful. Uh, David, Aaron, have you found? Yes. This is Elizabeth Axel, um, and I was privileged to be working under you and Connie 
at the time that you were the director of the Whitney Museum of American Art. And um, so there was a, an existing staff there, and you all came in, and I saw um, tremendous change um, in terms of the staff's um, point of view and as well um, a real spirit of openness and accessibility. Um, the audience that was frequenting the museum really changed. And I would love to hear um, your perspective and Connie's perspective on how you all achieved that. Uh, well, I'm not so sure it was purposeful. I think it was just a function of who we were and what our interests were and uh, that we had a, a remarkable team of, of curators and educators working together. Uh, and uh, we were kind of blessed with being at the right place at the right time. I also think this is Connie Wolf speaking. I think that um, times have changed a lot. I think that um, when I listen to um, my colleagues, you know, Tom and Aaron and Max, um, you know, I know that they all have great integrity and, um, you know, their boards hired them to be heads of their these organizations because of the kind of openness and diversity that they have. I think it's just in a different era for museums now than it even was 10 years ago. Um, and certainly 20 years ago when I started in the museum world, when these kinds of issues were something that you just never even addressed. They, they just weren't discussed. And um, so I really think that we're now just trying to not make them separate issues, but integrate them into how we actually do business. And I think what Tom said about you know, the best diversity is the diversity on the staff, and that's been, I think, for all of us, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think that's really where we all have to reach out is making opportunities to really create the dialogue internally. And I think training is great, but there's nothing better than having somebody on your board, having people on advisory committees be working with us on an ongoing basis. That's well put, Connie. Thank you. Uh, does anyone else have any concluding comments to make? We have a few minutes left before the next conference is going to begin. I came into this late, so you may have already touched on this, but I'm just wondering if you as museum directors have any um, words of wisdom for us programmers in terms of how we can go back to our museum directors and uh, encourage them to uh, to take on more, you know, to focus more on visitors with disabilities. How can we um, encourage them to do this? Um, Aaron oh, okay. here. I, I think that um, several things. One, to be very uh, blunt and uh, unpolitically correct, if you're going to your director, point out to him that's where the money is. Um, there is a lot of funding that we're also trying to uh, to obtain now that is available for these kind of specific programs because I think we all understand and luckily foundations understand that there's a need here. Uh, so it's a way to um, really open up your museum in a manner that you can get funded. Um, and it's a, for, for us it's more of a question of having enough infrastructure to support the programs as it is uh, being able to actually afford the programs themselves. But beyond that, um, if, if your mission is to uh, bring the people of your community and your art together, uh, that has to include people who have certain, face certain barriers when they want to come together with art. And it's central to your mission, and you have to do it. I just don't think that there can be any question about it. Uh, I, I think that's very well put, Aaron. And, uh, you know, I think the most compelling argument that any staff member can make to a director <laughs> is to appeal to their, is obviously to appeal not only to the, the to the reality of economics and where the funding is, but also to to appeal to his or her sense of you know of the real mission of that institution, which is to serve as diverse a community as possible. And if they're not doing that, then you're not then you're then you're unlucky to be working in a place that's that's not living up to its potential, and you should look for a better place to work. Uh, I don't. I don't know any directors. I don't know any directors who would turn away from the idea of trying to make their their institutions more successfully accessible to a range of 
underserved communities. I, I really don't, but these are difficult times, and uh, I have the luxury of being uh, a former museum director at this point, and, uh, which uh, none of the other panelists do. Does anyone else have any secrets to give to this, um, to this staff member? I'd just say as a director, you know, the Art Access Program at the Queens Museum was in, already in place when I got here. And, you know, we've expanded it and, and, you know, made it bigger and better. But it's one of the most sort of personally enjoyable and enriching experiences of my professional life to work in a place that's opened the doors and broken down barriers uh, that I've had in terms of my own psychological relationship with folks with disabilities. And it's just great for the museum. And it'll be great for you personally and your director personally. I'm not, by the way, in any way denying what Aaron says. Talk about the money as well. There's money out there for it. But I just, it's just a great part of, of my life and the whole staff's life. 